0: Hello and welcome to the Toast Podcast with me, Laura Barton. For our fifth series, we'll be talking about rhythm how it forms in us, how we carry it, and where it can lead us. For months, the pandemic left Ballet Black unable to perform the first break in the stride of the revolutionary classical company set up 20 years ago by Londoner Casa Pancho. As they made tentative plans to reopen, she talked to me about our deep need for rhythm, diversity in the ballet world, and the sounds and sensations that led her to enter the world of dance. So Casa, this is a series about rhythm, so we've Figured you were pretty well qualified to discuss that. But can we go way back to the sort of earliest rhythms you remember uh, in your childhood?
1: I suppose for me, my dad brought me up listening to Jimi Hendrix, The Beatles, Luther Vandross and Billy Ocean on our record player. And that was always a part of the background noise of um growing up. And my mum was obsessed with Glenn Miller And the Vivaldi Four Seasons album, I remember the uh, vinyl with a picture of Nigel Kennedy on it. Those things were always playing in the background and then every single Michael Jackson album to date. And that was the background noise for my childhood.
0: And this was in West London, is that right? Yeah, that was in West London. We went from Acton to Ealing. And what were the rhythms of Ealing, would you say?
1: I mean, that, that followed us everywhere. But I suppose when I got to Ealing, I think I would be about three or so. That is when I was enrolled in ballet classes, a little bit before that, but I was uh, enrolled in ballet classes. And so the other noise of my life was a very out of tune, upright piano that uh, somebody would just be pounding on (laughs) every Saturday morning.
0: And how did you end up going to ballet? Was that your, I imagine, your parents' decision
1: if you were so young? It was definitely my parents' decision. They took me along and I cried at the thought of being left there, um, cried all the way through the ballet class. And then after probably a a year or two, I would cry when they came to pick me up. So I was a real brat, whichever way you look at it.
0: (laughs) And what was it that you loved at the age of sort of four or five by then about dancing?
1: I think I loved wearing uh, my leotard with a little ruffly skirt attached to it. I loved dancing to what I thought was really good music. And I really liked my ballet friends there. So it was a very different set of friends to my school colleagues.
0: And how did you meld these two worlds of of your dad's Billy Ocean and Luther Vandross, Jimi Hendrix and and your (laughs) mum's Nigel Kennedy, and then this? upright piano, leotard world?
1: Well, every year at the school I went to, there would be an annual performance in a theatre. And I think at that age, I thought they were all very separate things, a Billy Ocean, the Beatles, that was music for listening to. And the Plinky Plonky piano, or the Vivaldi, anything classical was what you did ballet to. And I think that At that time, anyway, classical music was ballet. Everything else was for enjoyment or dancing in a different kind of setting. And um, that really stayed with me until I got much older and went to professional dance training and started to realise that ballet was ballet. Whatever you danced it to, even silence, it was still ballet.
0: And how soon did did dance become
1: the sort of clear passion in your life? I think um, for me, I just kept going to more classes until I was going to ballet every day and on Saturdays I'd spend the whole day assisting our teachers with little babies and things like that and then staying to do I think three or four classes in the afternoon and it was never really a decision it was just so much a part of my life that it just seemed very natural that I would then go on to a professional training setting and then have some kind of career in dance
0: how did you feel when you were dancing? What did it have that you didn't find anywhere else in life?
1: I think it's something about being able to express yourself without having to think of the right words and to not say something that you don't mean because you haven't quite got the thought formed. Whereas with dance, it just sort of comes out right the first time. I mean, you may have to work on the move to get it right, but... It means what you want it to say, even if you need to still perfect it. Whereas sometimes when you talk, I think you can sometimes be so absorbed in what your answer is going to be. You don't fully hear what has been asked of you. That
0: said, we've been talking for five minutes or so and, and you are extremely articulate. Were you at that age?
1: I don't think I was ever given a situation where I needed to be articulate because I was just doing regular schooling, which I was okay at, or dancing. And I was good at dancing.
0: And how did it feel to get into the Royal Academy of Dance?
1: It was huge and exciting. Um, But after my first year, I discovered I had, I think, about three stress fractures in my spine. And then I had to stop for two years and, and be in a back brace. And then when I returned to complete my degree, I just had lost the desire to be on stage and I was much more interested in behind the scenes. I think I was in a, quite a lot of pain and a lot of my flexibility had gone. And the people I joined school with had, had gone on and graduated because I was out for so long. So it felt like a very different place. And, and then I went into a different year and I was uh, a couple of years older than everybody. And in my time off, I had spent just working normal jobs and so came back feeling quite a bit older than everybody that I was in the class with. I think it really just changed my perspective and I became much more interested in lighting design, choreography, how you got a show on, how you produced a show, and all the elements that no one ever sees or appreciates. But without the sound engineer or the lighting technician, these things don't actually happen. Performances don't happen.
0: Tell me back to when you discovered the stress fractures and and where you were and how that came about.
1: My final performance at my amateur school I remember doing a tonji which is a movement to the whichever direction but I was doing it to the back and I got an incredibly sharp pain up my whole hip and spine and I'd never experienced anything like it and I but it it didn't go away and over the summer before I started the Royal Academy I rested and it, it sort of faded and then when I got there I think within my first month the pain came back and so I was able to struggle through the first year but it just became this thing where my I became the person with a back issue and I really hated just not being able to just do everything properly and just being known as the one that has to be excused for physio or can't do this today because of her back and um, I mean it was a really long time ago now but that was my overriding memory of just sort of like oh god I'm the weird one that can't do everything the way everybody else can
0: I mean you say it is a long a long time ago but I guess if you if you think about the rhythm of your life that is not that is not the move you expect to be making in your not. how old were you mid-teens probably seven 18 and that's sort of the age when you probably imagined you were going very much on an upward trajectory
1: yeah I mean I I knew going to professional school would be really really hard and that was already very daunting um But I didn't realise that there would be a physical thing that stopped me from doing um, what I was supposed to do. It was also a big adjustment to be going somewhere new um, with new people, having to balance the dance and the academic stuff. And sometimes they weren't always planned in a logical way where you might think you do all the academic stuff in the morning and then spend the afternoon doing all physical or the other way around, but not chopping and changing the two.
0: Did it alter your relationship with your body?
1: Um, I was always lucky until that point, always naturally skinny, so didn't really have to think about being careful with my eating or things like that, which I know a lot of dancers did have to worry about. i have to worry about it now (laughs) that I'm in my 40s. It's very different. But it just made me very cautious. So a lot of dancers are really good at pushing through pain. And it made me really stop because of where the injury was, because it was my back. And at that time, I didn't know what it was. And it would radiate around. I just became more and more turned in on myself rather than pushing through, which is a a normal dancer thing to do, because it was really painful. I remember the pain more than my thoughts about it. It actually all worked out really well to have the time off, because when I went back, the academic work was nowhere near as daunting and I did much better. I was a really average student in my first year and then because I couldn't dance much, I did not make much of an impression on anyone. But When I went back, even though I was very slow to physically recover, my academic side was much, much better. Um, And I think that was, for me personally, just having a bit of time to grow up a bit. And so when I returned even though I was physically still limited, I didn't feel like I was completely at the bottom of the pile.
0: And what were the jobs that you did
1: in your in your couple of years of? I got myself a job at the Disney store in the Ealing Broadway shopping centre um, to pay for my travel card, which was, you know, we used to have cardboard travel cards to get to school and shoes and lunch and stuff like that. And then in the two years out I I took on more hours there and I also got a job at Next and in those days, do you remember the next sale where people would queue up? <laughs> yeah. I remember the insanity of that, like passing a queue of a hundred people who were all really angry I was being let in until they realized I worked there. And then trying to move rails of clothes around the shop to refill and people physically stopping you so they could go through the rail. It was insane. I enjoyed having money in my pockets as a dance student. I never had money. Um, but I did not miss any of that going back to training. But I kept the Disney store job because it was on Sundays. So I could train Monday to Friday, have Saturday off and then work on Sundays.
0: When you were out in the world and away from that sort of rigorous framework that you, you have to have as, as a dancer, how strange and disorientating was that different rhythm to your days?
1: It was really strange because, you know, the <laughs> the soundtrack of working at the Disney store is a loop. On an hour of the same Disney songs every hour so when you first get there you're like oh I love this song and I love that song and I remember that and then you go oh it's back again (laughs) okay and then by a year in you just want to stuff stuffed Mickey Mouses in your ear so you don't have to hear it but it was strange being around people that didn't know anything about dance because my entire life all my friends and and my one year at that point at the uh, RAD had been with ballet people so it was It was good. It was really good for me to get out of the ballet bubble and be with normal people, which is how I refer to people that haven't done ballet.
0: (laughs) So when you left the Royal Academy and you got this new interest in all the other mechanics behind putting on a production, how differently did that make you see the way that your life would go from that
1: point? I don't think I ever looked ahead to how my life would go. I think a turning point for me in my final year was writing my dissertation about the lack of black women in classical ballet. And some of the attitudes I encountered at my school really surprised me and the denial of any issue of race in ballet. And that really consumed my final year. And so that was the driving force when I left rather than the behind the scenes things, which were really useful to know. But then the driving force was how can power structure in ballet be changed to make a difference? And is it possible? And if so, how can you do it? And if you do it, what will the change look like? Could you give
0: us some examples of of how people treated you?
1: Well, I remember telling a tutor about my idea and was told black people don't have the physique for ballet and they're also not interested in classical art. So why would you want to spend your final year writing 10,000 words about that? I've just answered it for you. (laughs) Um, And I think that also because I am at the very pale, pale end of being dual heritage, that a lot of people didn't know that half of my family is from Trinidad. People often think I'm Spanish or something. So I was also dealing with a group of people that didn't know what racial makeup of person they were talking to. I mean, that sort of thing for me just makes me more determined to do something. So it was a really good starting point. But well, here we go. If we have a, a tutor in a very prestigious dance school who believes this, then what hope is there for anyone that wants to get into ballet who maybe is not white? And that was really good fuel for the dissertation. I think I read
0: that you struggled to find interviewees, didn't you, for your dissertation? Because there just weren't, really any black ballet dancers in the uk at that time
1: there weren't and again all this predates things like youtube because now i i get interviewed by students and they go why did not you just look it up and I, was like, <laughs> I think i sent my first email in that third year so i naively thought i'll interview four or five black women working in ballet in the uk and see what they went through to get where they got to and and there weren't any women working and that was i think 1999 so That meant I didn't have any um, answers from these women to, to use for my dissertation, so I had to go back to the very beginning and ask the question of myself and of schools. What are you doing to encourage, if anything, how many black students do you have? Why would your marketing look a certain way with a lovely black student on the cover and yet there's no one black in your class? You know, and what I found is that none of the schools would reply to anything that I asked and none of the companies either. And I think also at that time, we have to remember that people were not collecting that kind of data on their participants in the way that we do now. But uh, it just got harder and harder because I didn't really have anyone to ask. So I managed to find some male black ballet dancers who are British and some women who worked in contemporary dance. And I spoke to a a ballerina from America and looked, of course, at the work of Dance Theatre of Harlem in the US to form the basis of the dissertation. And the overwhelming shout from it was I was only blackface in the room. My teacher told me I should go into commercial dance or, you know, something where I would have a career. And so there was that sort of well-meaning teacher actively discouraging ballet probably not for um underhand reasons but it just meant that there was this drop-off point every time a dancer would get to that serious level they would be pushed out of ballet and into something different or they would be made to feel that their physique was just not going to work or they should break their feet and have them reset so that they would fit into a point shoe more easily and You know, that was just the tip of the iceberg then. And and as Ballet Black has gone on, you know, I've learned more and more and more. And even today, we're still uncovering things that are just horrific. But it's also as the world has learned what is and isn't acceptable. I'm sure that in 10 years, we'll look back on now where it seems like we're talking a lot more and think we didn't even scratch the surface. So, yeah, that's how I answered the question that I set myself. But I looked at my dissertation yesterday. It's very, very thin because (laughs) there weren't enough people really to talk to with that experience. And now I'm about to redo my interview questions with Black dancers that are working today, which means there are now about 20, which is not great. But I'm really interested to see how the questions from 20 odd years ago are answered today. (laughs) How did the
0: tutor who discouraged you from from doing that topic respond to your dissertation? Not interested at all. Really? No.
1: But there were a couple of other really great tutors there who were really interested in the topic, but uh, no, not interested.
0: So you started Ballet Black in 2001, I guess fired up by that.
1: How and where did you start? With complete naivety. (laughs) That's essential. With no idea of what running a business or a dance company which is the same thing but you know with no idea of how to do either um and in some ways that was a good thing because it meant there was no fear because i had no idea (laughs) what was coming so i found some studios that we got free of charge and one of the people i interviewed for my dissertation one of the first black men in english national ballet which was then called festival ballet he joined um, was retiring and so i asked him if he would teach a ballet class for ballet black and just by putting a black person in charge of the class not just a black person an, an excellent former professional ballet dancer with one of the top companies it changed the power structure in the room immediately and so everybody that came to the class the majority of the people were black and that was a really simple tiny thing That changed the way the room looked where did you get your students it was really word of mouth and they came from vocational schools a couple of people some were dancers who had missed the window to become ballet dancers but had gone into the west end Um, some very young kids that were coming up yeah it was a real mixed group but the joining thread was everybody really wanted to do ballet and everybody really wanted to have a class taught by a Black teacher. What was your first performance, public performance? First public performance was a fundraiser at the Royal Academy of Dance. And we were able to raise enough money to keep the little group of dancers we had going to then have a show in a in a real theatre at the Cochrane in Holborn, which sadly has closed down. But... We were able to do something there for a couple of years. From there, after a meeting with Deborah Bull, who was at the Royal Opera House, were able to move to the Opera House. So there was a, I mean, it was not as quick as that, but it was a slow progression.
0: And what did the Opera House mean to you?
1: I think meeting Deborah Bull was a real moment in Ballet Black's history, because now we're almost 20, I feel like we can say we have history. I had written to her and explained about Ballet Black. And she said, sounds really interesting. And as that was happening, she was taking over new space in the Royal Opera House, the Limbry and the Claw Studio, which were spaces that had been added so they could do more experimental work and work with different groups, not just the Royal Ballet and Opera. And she was in charge of that and said, it might be a good fit for what we're doing here. And we were also struggling to pay for studio space Outside, and she said, Well, we're not using our studios at the weekend, so why don't you move your operation over here? I mean, the Royal Opera House is sort of the gold standard for ballet. So, moving our operation there just made everyone want to come to Ballet Black. So, Deborah's support and the name of the Opera House really made people take us more seriously.
0: Do you feel that there's a constant push pull between? wanting the sort of acceptance and approval of an institution that has been predominantly white and wanting to bring them into your world?
1: Yeah, there was more of a push pull between wanting acceptance from the ballet world, because to start a ballet company back then wasn't really done. We had the established companies and there, there was nothing else. And then to say that the people in it are going to be black and Asian was like, what are you talking about? So that already made us odd and other and outside and so for a long time I feel like I worked quite hard to get the acceptance of the dance world and then I think 10 years in I just stopped caring and just decided I'm just going to do ballet black and if people like it they do and if they don't it's really not my problem what occasion that that sudden not caring I think I could see that we were doing something really different. And it just didn't matter if other companies or organizations bought into it or not, because we were independent. We had at that time Deborah's help to keep us in a building so that we had studios and things like that. And every year I could see we were getting better and doing more. And it was all because of our own work. It wasn't because of these other institutions. So why keep worrying about them?
0: And you'd started the junior school as well, hadn't you?
1: Yeah, a year after Bally Black, I started the BB Junior School, which started with a class of about, I think, six or eight little babies, I mean, three-year-olds. Then it sort of just eight into a school, which is, I think we offer 17 classes a week now. We've got over 150 kids in the school and um, they have teachers of all ethnicities and our kids, black or white or whatever else they are, never have the thought that ballet isn't open to them and never have the thought. They've never seen anyone that looks like them on stage because they've seen all the ballet black dancers. And the white students equally don't have any thought that it's unusual to see a black ballet dancer. It's all normal. And I think a big part of ballet black is just normalising different colours in ballet.
0: Do you ever lose the joy of seeing that when they're rehearsing or they're putting on a performance?
1: I mean, I yell at them a lot because sometimes (laughs) they're just nuts. But no, I don't. You can't really because there's something very pure about particularly the baby class, which is my favorite class. Even when they're being really super annoying, like I was crying (laughs) through the lesson, I have to remember that I was that child, too. So I can't be too mean. But their love of the music and the movement and seeing their teacher then go and dance on stage, it's really pure. So you, I personally never get tired of of that part.
0: So within the company, you've been a dancer, a choreographer, a director, a teacher. I'm guessing each of those roles, and probably all the other ones you do, has
1: its own distinct rhythm. Yes, yeah, sometimes it's just a clanging, screaming sound in my head. Um <laughs> Yes, I mean, now I I don't dance, thank goodness, anymore. Um, I suppose it's the rhythm of being in a studio, which is, no matter how gorgeous the music is that you're working with, it becomes a piece of the work because you need to know we've got to do that section again. So we go back by 15 seconds and we hear it again and again and again and again until the dance part of it is perfect. And then it can become... I look at my notes and it will say screechy part or the spinny part, just little, little describers for me so that I know where I am in the rehearsal. And it's not until we then get it onto the stage that I can try and let that practical side of it go and just enjoy the music and the dance together. And I go from the noise, sometimes it's noise, sometimes it's music of the studio, into the office, which is on a different floor, so you can't hear the music. And we have a football pitch outside our office. And the noise of that is just screaming kids kicking a ball against our window (laughs) for hours. I mean, they never stop. So that is going the whole time. Then you go back up and it could be any music from Steve Reich, eight microphones, which is just a thudding sort of sound (laughs) for six hours of the day, or really lovely piece of um, Etta James we're using at the moment for one of our ballets there's never the same piece of music playing and so sometimes to clear my brain in the office it's quiet but if it's not quiet then we have a pirate radio station playing the whole time (laughs) playing house music so there's a lot of different rhythms going on But they're all useful. (laughs) You said, thank goodness you don't dance anymore. Do you miss that physical experience? No, I was a body on stage of necessity because we didn't have enough cash to pay people because I was still very cautious of my back. I just needed to fill in for a little bit until we had enough money. And as soon as we had enough, we got some much, much better replacements.
0: Do you still dance in any other area of your life? Would you dance at a wedding?
1: I, yeah, I've had enough to drink. I would dance at a wedding. I dance with the baby class. I join in as much as I can with my teaching of the kids because one, they need someone to actually demonstrate often because they're so young. And two, I think it's just good to remember how to move because having stopped for those two years, you know, it was really hard to come back from that so I don't love dancing and I know that's a really strange answer for somebody from the ballet world but I know the benefit of you know always making yourself move.
0: You've commissioned a lot of very interesting choreographers haven't you? Um, Yes. Could you give us a couple of examples and what it is you like about their work and what you're looking for?
1: Gosh there's so many. I recently, 2019 I think, I commissioned a French choreographer called Sophie Laplan, the resident choreographer at Scottish Ballet. And she made a really fun piece for us called Click, split into sections. And it was a real mixture of really beautiful lyrical movement, really interesting, fun movement. And it was costumed in really bright suits, but also danced on point. And I think it really challenged the idea of what people should look like on stage. And it was fun. And I think sometimes people forget that ballet can be fun. You can go and just really enjoy it, not because you're moved emotionally, but because you just had a really good time watching it. So Sophie Laplan is someone um, I really enjoy working with. And another choreographer I'm really excited about is a company dancer who's always been choreographing quietly in the background. But when he came here, his name is Matutu Zeli November. He's from South Africa. And when he joined the company as an apprentice, he said, oh, I really like to choreograph. And we found some little small opportunities for him. And that all built up into a really brilliant piece that we made in 2019 called Ingoma, which was the first black classical ballet choreographer in the UK to make a main stage piece. So it debuted at the Barbican on the on the main stage. And it was also the first ballet to document a historical event in black history, the South African mining crisis that was in the 40s, but also really applies to loads of different situations in Africa. And it was incredible. And it won a black British theatre award and it won the Olivier Award. So, I mean, if you win an Olivier Award, then you're my favourite choreographer. Cause, yeah. <laughs> yeah it's yeah. like the criteria now is how many awards is your ballet going to win for us? Yeah,
0: yeah, <laughs> quite. Um, where are we now in the UK in terms of race and ballet? I know there's some very well-known figures at English National Ballet and Scottish National Ballet, well, there were a while back, but
1: more generally, has it changed? Ooh. we have a lot of work to do in the ballet world, we have some acknowledging to do because what I am finding, particularly given the most recent Black Lives Matter movement, is that people are still in denial that there is an issue about race in ballet. And I think the only way for us as an industry to move forward is that some of us should no longer be made to explain That there is a race problem. It feels to me a little bit like TV shows that bring on a really, really opposing opinion for balance when we know there are facts. Climate change, it's a fact. And race problems in ballet, it's a fact. So, can we stop having the conversation, is there a race problem in ballet? And say, yes, there is. So, how will we move forward from it? And I understand that talking about race is very uncomfortable for people. And often I think if you're not Black or Asian or, you know, you might think it's not your place to speak, but actually racism wasn't brought about by or perpetuated by Black and Asian people. So actually, if you are not Black or Asian, it's a really good time for you to get in there and talk about it and see what can be done about it. But it feels really difficult to do that while we are trying to convince people that it is a problem. I know you've done some work like point shoes
0: that aren't Caucasian point shoes. Are those things that we might not always identify as having any influence over who goes into ballet? Are there other ones that you you would point to?
1: I think um, you know the shoes was a real significant moment for not just for ballet black, but I think for British ballet. These things have been done in America for longer, but they have a longer history of having black artists in ballet because of Dance Theatre of Harlem. And I think what we can't underestimate is the importance of being able to walk into a a ballet shop and seeing something in your own skin colour. And how what that signifies to the to not only the student, but also the family to see there is a place for you in ballet because here are some tights in your skin color it's really basic and it was really really hard to get it done and we got a lot of abuse from a lot of places for shoes and tights which shows you there is a problem with race globally still but even though may seem like a small thing it is a big thing to have these items but i think we need to be cautious that we don't say well we have brown shoes and tights now we're done diversity is solved because i think that when you have something tangible like that that you can actually feel and see it's easy and i understand the comfort in it to say we've done that we're finished with our work the truth is there's a lot of unseen stuff still happening even if it's micro it's still happening and we need to get ballet to a place where a little girl or boy whatever color doesn't have to consider that there isn't something necessary to do ballet that doesn't exist for them because of their skin color or that they have to do extra work on like dyeing or painting because it doesn't exist for them.
0: And a lot of your work now extends outside of the city, outside of London, doesn't it, as well?
1: Yeah. Pre-Rona, we would tour the UK, I mean, all year, really. We're a touring ballet company. So we do our big London things like Barbican, but then we go out on tour and we take ballet to places either the size of the Barbican, huge thousand-seater places, or really small intimate theatres like the Stanley and Audrey Burton Theatre in Leeds or Dance Exchange in Birmingham, so the hope is, and actually, we, it's true, that taking this work to smaller places means that you are getting work out to people that maybe don't consider themselves people that go to big, fancy, expensive theaters. They go to their small local theater, and so we we like to try and engage both of those audiences, so that the, the question is answered. Here is Ballet Black. The dancers are brilliant. Have a look inspired whether it's just to to watch ballet to enroll your kid in ballet it doesn't matter we know that not everyone that joins ballet is going to become a professional dancer that's not really the goal but it's just to to change the look and the landscape of the whole art form because, not just who's on stage who's in the audience as well
0: yes absolutely because the world of ballet uh, it's not just got a race problem or even a gender problem it's also got a huge class and economic problem hasn't it just as yeah. opera does yeah
1: It does. I mean, and that's because the country has that problem. So, you know, and but some things like ballet really cling on to that class thing. And actually, when you think about it, ballet schools, like the sort of pre-professional ones are generally in church halls up and down the country. You know, they're, they're not terribly expensive compared to football and a football kit and all that kind of stuff that you would need for for activities which are far more accepted I think and all walks of life go to our ballet school and for sure even in the uh, early 80s when I was at ballet school there were people from all different backgrounds so I think that this idea that ballet is really really elite that might be the very top part of ballet like athletes like Olympic athletes only the very very best will be professional but at the amateur level where there are far more people it's really for anyone if you want to to dance you want to move you want to make friends you want to learn if you as a parent if you want your kids to learn about discipline and working hard and all that kind of stuff, ballet is perfect as well as the physical activity which we know now much more today really helps mental well-being as well so it still baffles me that people think that ballet is such a quote high art thing because one I don't really know what high art is art is art maybe you don't like some of it and you do like other aspects that's fine but I think when we talk like that we separate and we prevent people from participating
0: this has obviously been not only just a job but a massive labor of love and a passion for you what room do you have in the rest of your life for other things that have absolutely nothing to do with ballet?
1: None.
0: <laughs> Why would I do that? <laughs> I don't know. The skipping sounded intriguing.
1: <laughs> None. None. Nothing else whatsoever. Fair enough. That's very <laughs> <laughs> You learnt discipline early, I guess. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, particularly now that we are really talking about race, I mean, we either... The dance world mm-hmm. it's much more mentally taxing and even though corona has prevented us from doing our usual live shows there's in some ways more going on um behind the scenes at ballet black even though our dancers can't be working the normal way there's still a lot going on in talks and discussions and consulting and helping other organizations look at how they treat diversity so it there's just constant clanging going on and so for a day that's not at work I mean I'm thinking about it all the time but maybe I'm also watching telly or going out to the park for a walk but when I'm out on my walk I'm probably talking to somebody about ballet black so how do you think the dance
0: world and the creative world in general is going to look when we are
1: liberated from corona related lockdown Ah, that's a really good question. I I went to one show in between the lockdowns. I think it was October when theatres were allowed to do really Mm -hmm. distance shows. And it sold out so fast, I got the last ticket. And I had thought I had loads of time to book because, you know, the news keeps telling us that everyone is going to be very cautious to return to stuff. But actually, they tell us that at the same time showing us beaches (laughs) packed with people or people in shops and you know so I hope that audiences will be keen to come back as long as we can do it safely and I think in theatre actually we're so used to working within restrictions of low low cash and stuff like that that if you tell us this is how it's got to be done we'll do it and there's no one better than stage managers of the theatre world to make sure that we're all doing what we're supposed to be doing and I know the ballet black dancers and, and our wider friends in the dance world are desperate to be back on stage. So I hope that there will be a year of just pure joy and happiness to be back from our side and the audience's side. You know, it's been useful to have a bit of time to think and and plan, but really, we're a ballet company. So if we can't perform for you, then what should we be doing? <laughs>
0: what do you think? we get as audiences from watching other people dance?
1: Oh, I think at a Ballet Black show, I mean, I hear loads of different things. Some are just body envy from just seeing these amazing people um, and the things they do and the lifts and the moves. And and I, I think there's that, but there's also the beauty of the movement and the music and, you know, a really good production pulls all those things together. And you're not really aware of the individual things. You're just seeing a great piece of art. And I think that it gives... However long the show is, that is a moment of escape. And
0: for you personally, not even as a professional ballet person, is there one particular move in ballet that just makes your heart lift when you see it? (laughs)
1: Um, I'm so critical. As you should be. I think because I know how painful it is, seeing a ballerina a bourre across a stage, which is lots of little tiny steps on point. But if you do it right, you just look like you're floating. When that is done to perfection, that is probably one of my favourite moves. Throughout your
0: career, Kessa, there seem to have been parts where you've been part of an established rhythm of the dance school and studying ballet. But there have also been periods of disruption, whether that's your injury when you were younger or whether that's even coronavirus now but also more deliberate acts of, of disruption whether that's introducing point shoes and tights that work for different skin colours or frankly even founding Ballet Black at all. How aware are you of the importance of disruption to, to an established rhythm and do you use that as a tool?
1: I don't think I deliberately use it as a tool but I uh, have Become over the almost 20 years very aware of what the disruption, what the fallout from the disruption will be. And each time something happens, like the shoes, or like the time that we performed with Stormzy at Glastonbury, that was a massive disruption in terms of we were going along slightly under the radar, known in the dance world, but not really to the wider world. And this just dropped us onto mainstream television and that was really great for us and a bit exposing because first of all, a load of people were like, wow, who, who's this? But under that were a lot of people saying, why are you worrying about brown shoes? Which was what words about the brown shoes were projected over our performance at Glastonbury because Stormzy could not believe that shoes were only made in 2018 for people with brown skin tones. And so he wanted to, along with all the other community elements that he worked into his set, he wanted to feature Ballet Black and the fact that these shoes took so long to come into being. So that was wonderful. Very exciting. Performing at Glastonbury was incredible. And a disruption to our normal way of working, like going to a theater, setting it up. You know, we were with Stormzy's people and choir and the bike gang. And it was, you know, not like a ballet black setup at all. We warmed up in a dressing room where somebody was just cutting towels into smaller towels for all the other (laughs) singers. So all of that was fun and very exciting. And then the performance happened and we were riding on an incredible high, But underneath that were a lot of people who decided to send us a lot of abuse because why were we talking about the importance of brown shoes when knife crime is so prevalent? Why would you want a ballet company to solve knife crime? I mean, obviously, because they think all black things are one. So that was a real disruption to... Our sort of established slightly under the radar <laughs> rhythm of of existing on social media. And, you know, we we blew up for a time, you know, about a month, we were getting probably six wonderful comments and four horrible ones every hour. And that was that was huge. And similarly, when the shoes came out, just within the dance world, we got a lot of Praise. And a lot, of, a lot of people saying, I didn't realise this didn't already exist, which really annoyed us because it took so much work to get them made. But then under that, an undercurrent of people who really didn't want us changing the tradition of pink tights and shoes and thought that it was the stepping stone to ruining ballet, which is insane because how does a black dancer having shoes in her skin colour take away anything from a white dancer having shoes and tights in their skin color, it doesn't. So these are things that I can now see, I know if we're gonna launch this or say this or do this performance, it's going to blow the lid off for a bit, not constantly because people move on to other issues, but it becomes very exposing in a good and bad way each time. Toast podcasts
0: are presented by me, Laura Barton, and produced by Jeff Bird. The music for this series is by Laura James. Toast is a British clothing and lifestyle brand that aspires to a slower, more thoughtful way of life. To hear more episodes from this and former series, head to Toast magazine, which can be found at www.toa.st. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do like and subscribe.